Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. Hi, this is Chris Shepard. Just a disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only. They should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments, or take any other actions. Thank you and enjoy the show. Today we've got Cliff Hockley. Cliff is the president of Bluestone and Hockley Real Estate Service. Today we will be talking about how they were able to grow the organizational structure of the business and the most important aspects of managing the company. He also shares the challenges they've had as the business grew, the difference between managing residential and commercial properties, and the best practices that they have implemented. So without further ado, welcome Cliff. All right. Well, today we've got Cliff Hockley with Bluestone and Hockley, also author of successful real estate investing. Cliff, thank you very much for coming on our show. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So I've been in where the do, real estate does, market for about where start, where you start, right? right? Where do you start? <laughs> but I've been, I've been involved. So yeah. So anyway, I went to undergraduate school at Claremont, what was then men's college, McKenna College, oh, so many years ago, 1975 to 1979, then went to graduate school at Willamette University, which was originally not a business school, but came out with an MBA. And then I moved to Portland in a miserable, miserable recession, had a hundred rejection letters. I went knocking on doors and you know, that's when you learn how to do that. And this one guy was a headhunter. He said, well, why don't you call so-and-so? So I went to see so-and-so. He said, I don't have a job, but maybe so-and-so does. Walked in, had an interview. They hired me on the spot as a cost accountant. I know oh. nothing about cost accounting, but they wanted a cost accounting and they liked me and they hired me. So, and of course, it's a recession. I mean, I was like two months worth of money left in my bank account. I was about, you know, grinding out. And so I took the job and I did cost accounting. And then I moved to pricing product. We were as a Cornell pump company making products. And then I wanted some responsibility. So they gave me, we were making insulation surgical pumps. And so I was involved in the pulling parts together and shipping them out. And I had 10 people working for me. And then they said, okay, Cliff. You've tapped out. You're not going to earn any more. It's $12 an hour. That's where we're at. So just so you know how long ago that was. And that was $30,000 a year. And I went, well, that's not going to work for me. I want to have a family and kids and so forth. So my father-in-law had a company called S. Bluestone Realty. And he said he'd had a heart attack. He said, I really need some help. And so two or three heart attacks. So I went to work for my father-in-law and it was a family business. We had, I don't know, 10 people and small property management company. And, you know, we had some challenges. We had some clients that hadn't paid us. And it was the first 10 years were really, really difficult. I remember, you know, you've heard this, hire great people and good things will happen to you. You've heard this before, right? Well, you got to be able to afford to hire great people. So yeah. we hired great people. We hired great people. And then, of course, the money didn't come. It's not the whole build it and they will come. That nah, doesn't always work that way. So I had to lay off a bunch of people. Had to get rid of health insurance in order to write the boat. It was a really challenging first 10 years. The second 10 years, I was able to pay for the bills using my credit card. 
and and grow the company. And the company grew really well. We ended up, that's the second 10 years is where we started doing commercial property management. We started doing, in addition to residential, and then we started also doing HOAs. And then we, you know, we just kept expanding. We bought a building, we moved in. And the one thing we learned from owning our own building is, well, we grew faster than the building could absorb. So we moved in and we had a bunch of people quit first. So then we had this huge building, nobody in it. Then we filled it up and then we needed across the street and we had at least another building over here. And I went, okay, this is not working for me. And so we sold that building and traded it into real estate instead and leased. And that was probably one of the best decisions we ever made as far as not owning our own building because we had a hard time managing our growth. It was just really difficult. You know how it is. Sometimes things grow. You know, we've had, we have a, we had one year where our condo division went from one employee to seven in one year. I mean, it was just explosive, explosive yeah. growth. And today, you know, we do commercial management, residential management, condominium association management, and maintenance and brokerage. And, you know, that's a lot of people. It's 80 people. So it's a lot of mouths to feed and things you got to take care of and, and be thoughtful about it. But that gives you sort of a base outline of where we were at and what we're doing today. And today, you know, we have people like, you know, we have a BDM, a business development manager to help us bring in business. But I would say nobody could forecast the pandemic. We've had recessions before. We've been able to forecast recessions. We've had downturns. We've been able to shrink and then grow again as, you know, after recessions. But this pandemic that we're just coming through is, was not forecastable. But in the last 10 years, we've gotten ultra conservative paid every single bill off. And so when we went into the recession, we were in, in a good financial position was not, and we were able to, you know, we we're able to get through that comfortably. Cliff, I mean, it sounds like there have been multiple recessions through, from which you were growing. How did you, I guess, manage the risk and the growth? Because we find that, you know, when it comes with the investment and growth, you know, that puts you in a bit of a, a risky position. So how did you do it? as your company was growing? I think the real trick, the real challenge is your people. And I'm sure you faced this as well. Unfortunately, in this business, there's enough employee turnover that it's just very challenging to have continuity of service. So our number one priority is to make sure we have really, really good people that we make sticky. In other words, we try to make sure we have the good benefits and pay them and you know bonuses and stuff like that so that our people are making a, a good income. We weren't able to do that in the first 20 years. That In the first 20 years, it was just really difficult to earn enough money to be able to offset the costs of the operation. And, you know, it is an extraordinarily people-intense business. And, you know, we innovate every single day. You know, every day we're talking about what can we do? How do we do this better? How can we do this with less steps? How can we create systems so that we don't make certain mistakes. You know, we're doing in this downturn, this in this COVID downturn, we switched very quickly to meeting with our clients once or twice a month, our largest clients. We met with them frequently so that the uncertainty wouldn't make them nervous. And so we really focused on, so they also, they get financial reports and they have a, they meet with their property manager very, very frequently. So, because communication is really the key. And, and one of the things that we've changed over the last five years is just improved the reporting and the communication to our clients. And, and when you get into a recession, you know, a couple of things happen. First of all, some tenants fail. 
and not every owner is able to keep their building. And so you have to sort of navigate that. When I joined this business in the 83, 83, 84, 85, no, 86, excuse me, in 86, it was one of the worst recessions ever. And people were, interest rates were 18%. I know you've heard this before, like it's a story, but it's true. Interest rates were 18%. You know, you couldn't, you couldn't buy a building. I mean, it was, you know, we, the first building I sold was a house, but the second building I sold, we wrapped a 12 flex. We wrapped the contract and we didn't, we had language in the contract that basically said, should the bank find out that we sold the building, we'll equally split the costs of whatever the bank wants us to do. Because there was just no way, there was just no way we were going to get any deals done. It was a horrible, horrible time. And I can't even describe how difficult that time was. But we were able to grow our business and people still, you know, brought us houses to manage and apartments to manage. And, you know, there was a lot of REO. What kicked off our office building business was REO, real estate owned. So in other words, banks were in trouble. They took all these office buildings back and they didn't know what to do with them. And so we got hired by what a bank that doesn't exist anymore. Well, I'm at Savings Alone. We got three projects from them. We got hired by Northern Life Insurance. We got hired by, oh my God, Benjamin Franklin Savings Alone. You know, these names that you just don't exist in this market anymore because the feds destroyed these banks and savings loans. But we got hired by them and we took over a bunch of properties and it was the core, it was an opportunity for us. But people out there right now that are my age or a little older, they're thinking, this is going to come back. But the Fed has really managed the economy differently. They've gone, they've taken interest rates down instead of up. And so there aren't as many foreclosure opportunities as there were in the 1980s. In the 1980s, you know, people like Joe Weston were able to buy buildings for pennies on the dollar. I mean, you're talking about half or a third of what a building was worth. That has not occurred much. I mean, even in these last two or three recessions, tenants have stayed, they've paid half the rent because of interest rates, not as many loans have been given back. And so, I mean, there's obviously some REO, but not anywhere near the, the scope that there was then. So our preparation for a downturn is automatically to go into downsize procedure. I mean, we immediately lay off staff. When, in March of last year, when we saw this coming, we automatically laid six people off right away before PPP. PPP allowed us to bring people back. We just went, all right, we're redoing our budget. And we did. And how can we operate with fewer people to make sure that we had room to pay for the overhead that we wanted to deal with? Did I answer your question? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So along that like period of growth, you must have had tons of experiences along the way. And I was wondering if you would share with us you know, some of the, the more difficult times that you ran into and possibly how you might have avoided them. I know, in reading your book, you shared quite a few fables, and I believe that this is the, a good model, that I, and I really enjoyed li- reading and listening to them. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, the book. So the best story in the book, I think, is the one about the apartment complex. Where is this story here? Nightmare at the Black Cloud Apartments. And at that property, you know, everything went wrong. There was a homeless man sleeping in the pool house. There were, the onsite manager was stealing the rent. Owners never showed up. And I could go on. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong in our business. And, and in fact, you know, we've experienced that. We had an onsite manager is a great story. 
out with my executive vice president at the time. We're inspecting this, I don't know, 40-unit apartment complex on 102nd, southeast 102nd. And we're walking across property. We had an on-site manager. It was a dump. It was it was not a B. It was not a C. It was not barely even a D. The, Getting down the, towards that F range. Yeah, the two-bedroom units were 600 square feet. So can you imagine 600 square feet in a two-bedroom wow. unit? Wow. Very, uh, very small. So it's small. So anyway, the on-site manager, first of all, try to find an on-site manager for a property like that. Impossible. Oh. Impossible possible nobody wants to do that i mean just nobody wants to do that so we got somebody and we're walking across the property this woman comes up to us and she goes is my unit ready is your unit ready i understand well i'm supposed to be moving into that unit which was across the parking lot okay well i don't know let's find out so we went over and was almost ready we found out that the on-site manager so creative had taken her rent money and not turned it into the office and use it as a reservation fee for that unit. And she'd done that with other tenants as well. The onsite manager had charged all the tenants parking revenue. So she'd made 50 bucks a month from every single tenant at the apartment complex. Very creative. If you ask me, obviously we, <laughs> we found out, we found out by accident. And so, you know, that drove us to only collect rents at the office. I mean, we just have never allowed on-site managers in a big way to collect rents because there's something that happens on the motorcycle on the way from the apartment complex to the office when they bring the money in, right? It falls off. I just lost it. It just fell out of my pocket. It just went up to the road and, and it just, I don't know what happened to the rent money. I'm so sorry. So, yeah, I mean, those are real experiences. They really did happen. And, you know, there's a, another great story. We were appointed receiver for U.S. Bank of an apartment building, 50-unit apartment building in North Portland. And you know where the Ratke five-way intersection is, right? There's five roads that come together at Ratke. Mm-hmm. And so it was okay. I figured it was going to be pr- pretty okay. There was an on-site manager. We decided that eh, she probably needed to go without thinking ahead that we needed to find a new one. So we found a guy, really, really nice man. These tenants were dangerous to some extent, very, very poor. He walked around the property with a baseball bat because he didn't know he was going to get mugged. True story. He had a son that lived with him. Wow. And his son was charging, well, not charging. His son was sleeping with the girls at the property. You know, he just found a girl. You know, how do you manage that with a you know, 14-year-old boy? Da, 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 da. And then, you know, power, power was being pulled underground to feed marijuana gardens underneath uh, a flooring and to, and the previous and the owner who, by the way, got the property back in much better condition than he gave it to us was using stealing from Peter to pay Paul. So when he didn't have a refrigerator, he'd steal it out of a unit that wasn't rented. And so there was no money. And so, and the place was a disaster and slowly, but surely we got one unit by another. I had my maintenance guys wore guns out there. They took guns with them because they just didn't know if they were going to mug. We had a tenant who shot his wife while we were there. Yeah, it was not good. Uh, she survived. Then we had another tenant who lived with his parents. And it didn't dawn on me because I was a little naive at the time that maybe there was a problem. Why would a 40-year-old live with a 70-year-old parents? It just didn't click with me. And there was a little go-kart out in front of the apartment, and I just didn't understand. Well, he was a pederast, and he was sort of seducing the kids. And I mean, it was one nightmare after another at that property, which we then turned around and, you know, I was thought I was being really smart by getting this 50 unit apartment complex. Little did I know that it was one big cesspool 
but we fixed it. I mean, you know, we can do it. You can do anything you put your mind to. And we wanted a show that we could do 50 unit apartment complexes. So we were willing to take a dog and do that. That being said, we're very careful about tenant select, building selection and tenant selection too. We once had the opportunity to manage a building that had barbed wire all around it, close and over on a hundred and I don't know, 120th in, in East County and then drove up there and I, yeah, don't you want to manage it? It's really exciting. Beautiful property. But obviously they were protecting the inmates. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally fence, barbed wire. And I went, no, we're not taking that property. Yeah. And that's the one of the dip, most difficult lessons to learn is you can't make enough money in certain parts of the business. You know, it's just so expensive to manage certain parts of the business you just can't can't get there it's just impossible so yeah multifamily housing has helped us condo housing has been really good for us we have you know and unfortunately i would say the most labor intense is multifamily housing residential multifamily housing is the most labor intense of all of our work i mean the commercial work is not as labor intense and the condominiums are busy in a lot of night meetings but it's different it's a different spin so anyway, well, Chris, I think we're ready for the next question. <laughs> Take it away, AJ. Yeah. So, I mean, and I guess, why do you say that residential multifamily is like the hardest or the most labor intensive? Like what about it kind of really just creates a lot of labor? I'm sure you have noticed, as we have noticed, that recruiting right now is really difficult, recruiting staff, mm-hmm. number one. And number two is getting on-site managers is really tough. Finding good on-site managers is any on anything less than a 50 or 70 units really difficult. Finding a part-time on-site manager. When I started in the business, we had a 30 unit called Fir Grove on the in in Beaverton, and a young couple showed up. A guy sent a picture of all of his tools. He was the maintenance man. She was the property mama, and that property was beautiful. Was always taken care of, and we had no trouble recruiting. Today. We have to have three or four of those together to justify a manager that becomes sort of a roving manager because it's just so difficult to find staff that wants to do that. Not only that, the city of Portland about three years ago decided in its wisdom that on-site managers who are now employees, which before, if you remember, they were sub, sort of subcontractors in a sense. You know, it used to be you could have an on-site manager, you gave them some free rent, maybe some money for the electricity, and they worked part-time and... Maybe you give them a stipend, but you didn't have to spend that much money on making it happen. Today, it's required vacation time, required workers' compensation, required sick leave. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, the, the list of requirements for somebody that's working very part-time, because what are they really only doing? They're making sure that nobody's destroying the place, and they're showing a few units a month. You know, they're not. it's not a full-time gig. Now, City of Portland in particular, but also the state, has made it very difficult for anybody to hire somebody just on a very part-time basis. It's it's extraordinarily difficult. And then the turnover and the training and the landlord-tenant laws, overwhelming. I mean, how are you going to teach somebody who only works, I don't know, 10 hours a month renting units for you, everything about the landlord-tenant law and make sure they're not going to be discriminating and that they're not going to say something wrong? I mean, we've had our share of claims with you know what used to be HUD and now is BOLI for discrimination because people just say the wrong thing. Not intentionally. They just say the wrong thing. And that constant, constant training that you have to do with your staff, it's just it's a huge challenge. So that's the answer to the question. 
Yeah. Maybe you guys don't have to do that. Maybe you do it all <laughs> video. You probably do video classes, right? <laughs> we we do a lot by video, that's for sure, even before the pandemic. Well, let's let's talk about like so you came on with Bluestone and Hockley, it was your father-in-law's company and you grew this thing like you you must have had a bunch of success along the way like maybe tell us a little bit about like some of the investors that you've worked with or some of those successes that's an interesting interesting question you know (laughs) we bought some companies along the way and so we bought some small companies you know three four accounts here five six accounts there some of those clients became really invested in our company, not financially invested, but we help grow. And we have taken at least five clients from nothing or from very little to, you know, 15, 20, $30 million portfolios over a period of 15, 20 years. So I'm really focused on helping people reinvest, helping people refinance, helping them trade in from one thing to another reverse exchanges, other exchanges. So, you know, we work, we've got this one client, we just sold him a little apartment building. Before that, we sold him a strip center. Before that, we sold him, what the hell did we sell? I mean, so, and what we do is we go and refinance something else and use it as a leverage. So one of the pieces of the puzzle for us is helping our clients grow, helps us grow as well. It's become much more difficult in the last three, four years because the Portland metro marketplace has gotten so expensive that it's really difficult for clients to make money in a way that they used to. People that got in the business seven, 10 years ago hit it just right after the last recession. They hit it just right. They just got on and they just hung on for the ride. I mean, it makes us look like geniuses, but the rents went up so significantly that in Portland and in Salem and in Vancouver and in Bend and in Redmond, you know, and in Eugene, you know, it just, it was just, economic growth was significant, had to do with population surge. You know, you have to sort of anticipate the bubble of the population. So now we're past that bubble right now. And those people are now buying houses. So we're going to have a higher vacancy rate just because it's economically induced. It's just, it's just is what it is. And of course, builders now are, they overbuilt. We knew they were overbuilding. We saw it coming. And so we're going to be overbuilt for a couple of years. And then, you know, it's just, so much more expensive to build right now than ever has been. You guys know this as well as I do. In the last two years, the cost of materials has gone up 30%. Cost of labor has gone up. And, you know, our previous administration closed the borders, which I think is going to happen again with the current administration, as a matter of fact, and closed the borders to labor. And so that has is going to create an artificial, or maybe not artificial, it's going to create a labor shortage. And we will end up grinding very slow because we won't be able to get stuff done and that is going to force the borders back open again in some sort of bracero program or something like that in my opinion within the next two years we just won't be able to cope with that kind of lack of of staff i mean to be able to get things done legal i might add that's why i said bracero i didn't mean illegal staff but you know we do we did you know drug testing and we do all these things you know our office isn't open right now i mean it's everybody's working from home but we've been planning for two years. We do, we do t- twice a year, we do planning meetings and we look forward. We're always looking forward. And so we had planned over the three year period to move all of our staff onto a process like this. I mean, we knew we were coming this direction. And so we had invested a little bit every year financially to build our infrastructure so that when the pandemic started, 
we did a transition program. I, my executive vice president and I, we planned a transition program. And I got back from being on the East Coast where I was for three weeks, actually for a week, came back and we implemented the plan and everybody was out of the office. Everybody, all 80 people were out of the office in two weeks after I got back. By the, by the end of March, everybody was out of the office. The only people that are still there are the people that are dealing with the mail, making sure that bills are, are being uh, scanned in and we even have our mail, you know, a lot of our bills are being paid by a payroll processing company and stuff like that. Not payroll, but bill paying, AP processing company. So, but we plan it. We just go step by step by step by step. And so I'm, a, oh, I mean, I understand real estate. I'm reasonably good at it, but you need to have really good ops people that can get your operations organized and make sure they're efficient. AJ, Isn't did that answer true? your question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. So, I mean, good stories. So you asked for some good stories, a good stories, happiness <laughs> stories. So what's a happiness story? We did some syndications and that was good for us. Challenging, but good for us. We could have, we just couldn't, unfortunately, my conservatism gets in my way. And so, but we've always been able to take care of our clients. I won't put a client into an investment that I wouldn't put myself into. So, you know, that's sort of the way I roll. And so the syndication was good. And I had one employee who was a key person. And at year seven, she had been promoted from receptionist to executive vice president because she was extraordinarily capable. And after her seventh year, she says, you know, I think it's time for me to go. I think I want to go to law school. And I went, wait, I can pay you more money. And so we cut a deal and she stayed for 20 years total. But she gave me 13 years notice. She said, I'm quitting at this date and I'm done. And she did. <laughs> and we're still good friends and we still do some projects together. But she helped us grow. I mean, you need, but finding good staff in the end, I'm sure AJ and Chris, you know this, finding good people that can help you grow. You can't do it by yourself. It's it is, impossible it to is do it by so yourself. Tough. Right. So having started in 1983 and you joined your father-in-law's company. So my guess is that it was, you know, a small company, less than 10 people. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And you've grown pretty significantly. Do you? want to talk us through kind of how your organizational structure has changed over that period of time to, you know, because yeah, there, there are a you. lot of, yeah, there's a lot of listeners out there. This is a real estate or the podcast for real estate professionals, you know, who are looking to grow and, and kind of dip their toe into investing. And one of those things is just how do you get to be that bigger company? And so I think we are all very interested to hear about that growth. Well, both AJ and Chris, you know that when you are a small 10-person company, you wear many hats, right? <laughs> so the hat that I've been able to avoid is the accounting hat. I mean, that's the one hat I've been able to avoid. <laughs> that being said, the hardest lesson to learn was you really need to keep your eye on the cash flow. And, you know, we do monthly financials. A lot of businesses don't do monthly financials. The most important thing a business can do is to have monthly financials that the owner of the company or the owners of the company review. Absolutely critical. Are we making money? Are we not making money? Where are we losing money? Where are we not? It's a discipline. It takes a lot of discipline. And that's just a critical piece of the puzzle. Then you got to figure out where your revenues are coming from. Are they coming from the maintenance department? I know the AG's out there hammering away. But I mean, are they coming from the maintenance department? Are they coming from contracting? Are they coming from where's your money? And unfortunately, the reality is that property management is really an undercompensated business. 
there's just not enough margin in management fees. End of story. And so you have to figure out, okay, what are the ancillary fees that I can charge that clients are comfortable with that will help me get to a revenue where I'm making money and I can pay my staff? And so that's, you know, that comes with experimentation, that comes with understanding the marketplace, that comes with seeing what your competitors are doing, and comes with going to conferences and meeting people and so on and so forth. You know, about five years ago, we did eviction insurance. We never did eviction insurance. What the hell is eviction insurance, right? We did eviction insurance. Well, you know, we do a really good job screening. We really don't have to evict that many people. So... You know, eviction insurance made some sense for us. Then we did project management fees, you know, project coordination fees, actually. That's a big deal, actually, for us. And that helps us a lot. On the camp side, on the condo side, there is a service that distributes information that we make when a property sells. We make 100 bucks for every, every unit that sells. And so if you have 7,000 units like we do, and you're making 100 bucks on every unit that sells, and let's say... 400 sell in a year, well, that's an extra little bit of money that goes to the bottom line. So, you know, we were part of a brain trust that's on the West Coast, the Western Regional Management Program. And we were invited many, many, many years ago into this program. And we learned a lot. We developed with that group. It's about 20 people up and down the West Coast and refining our processes, everything from management agreements to revenue, we compared, where are you making money, where are you losing money, and managing your payroll. I mean, it's a huge, huge, huge piece of that puzzle. You know, the rule of thumb in our industry, I don't know if you're aware of it, is, you know, your payroll should not be more than 50% of your management fees. And if it is, you're going to run into problems. Well, that's hard to do, not easy to do. Because in fact, even on that, your margin might be seven or 8% only because you've got, you know, you're paying for automobile costs, you're paying for insurance, you're paying for rent, you're paying for blah and blah and blah and blah. So building the company takes planning. It's, you know, it's like anything else, it's building blocks. It's not, it's not raising building blocks, understanding where you want to be and, and focus. It's focusing is good. It's not bad. a lot of people. And the other thing that I should mention, tell you, one of the strengths of our business is that we're diversified. You know, we have a brokerage department, we have a maintenance department, we have three different property management groups. So we definitely have the ability to offset because when one burner is not working, another burner is working. When one revenue stream is working, another one's not working. So it is very unusual for us to have all five of our revenue streams making money. It just doesn't happen. It's just you know, some, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. Sometimes you you make money on your maintenance jobs. And sometimes I'm sure you shake your head and say, I know I budgeted that thing, right? And how the hell did I end up spending an extra $5,000 on that project? Impossible. How did I do that? But as I put in my notes to you early on, the way investors make money is by owning real estate. Property management companies, it's a step to seeing what's working and what doesn't work. But owning your own real estate is really the magic to personal wealth and increasing your net worth. And the sooner an owner of a property management company buys their own real estate and improves their net worth, two things happen. One is banks are more likely to lend to them and if they need money for growth. And two, your net worth just bulks you up and grows by itself. And so you end up gaining strength. So I'll never forget, we were in trouble at one point. We got a line of credit and then the economy took a dive. And the bank says, U.S. Bank says, 
we want your line of credit. And it was $15,000. It wasn't a lot of money. But at the time, $15,000 was the earth, the moon, the sun, and the stars to us. I mean, it was just, we just didn't have it. So my father-in-law found some money, and we were able to borrow from him at a very high, extraordinary interest rate in money that he had saved to put the grandchildren to college. So it was a big deal. They got 9% interest. I know you can't even imagine that, but the kids got 9% interest. But we were able to get rid of the line of credit. Otherwise, that would have crushed us. It would have put us right out of business. So ever since then, I've had line of credits, used them very sparingly. You know, I'm very focused on bootstrapping, paying for everything in cash. I know it sounds sort of weird, but other people say, well, how do you grow? You can't speed up your growth. And I'm going, well, there's a velocity that you can accomplish. And some years are better and some years are worse. We know that we have to cover at least 10 to 15% growth every year because there's going to be attrition every year. You just need to know there's going to be attrition every year. No matter what you do, somebody's going to die, divorce, sell, whatever, and you're going to lose some of your business as a property manager. So you need to focus on building at least that much business. There you go. Yeah. A lot of amazing stuff in there. Thank you, Cliff. So to kind of dive into that growth, so you started with 10 people and you were wearing a bunch of hats. Like at what point, you know, you were talking through how you were slowly growing revenue, building blocks. And then when... You know, were there strategic points where you were adding in a person to, okay. You can see the demand coming. You can see the demand coming. You can see the need coming. You know, we grew incrementally. We always have some elasticity, but we have elasticity for maybe 10% growth of the business. The other rule is no one client is more than 10% of our business. I mean, that's the other rule we have because it destroyed my father-in-law. He had one client who we wanted to go up 1% from 5% to 6%. It was all houses and duplexes. And he said no, and he walked away with 50% of our business. And talk about an experience. I mean, I mean, when I said to you earlier, then knocked on my butt a lot of times, yeah, that was quite the experience when I said, you know, we're just not earning enough on your portfolio. We need to make a little bit more to pay our employees, the cost of wages and benefits and stuff like that. Because originally when I started the company, there was no health insurance, you know, I mean, it was, you know, and those are, that's a basic given now that, you know, you, it's hard to hire anybody without health insurance, but there's no real, there's no real, when you get to this, this happens, you know, what's expensive is having a good controller, you know, having a good accounting people. I mean, that is tough. I mean, there the bean counters are critical to your success. And, and, you know, I've had some really good ones and I've had some, yeah. Well, you know, not so good ones. You know, it, it is the bean counting side of the business is really, really critical. But yeah, understanding your business and planning for it. You know, we, like I said, those planning meetings that we were doing twice a year, once in the spring to review what we did the previous year, and then once in the summer, early fall to review where we're going in the next year, doing budgets. We do budgets. We have a one-page business plan for every department. So every department head has a one-page business plan. And it gives you, you know, strategies and objectives and action plan and, and Is that it's a organized. Habits? It's organized by quarter. No, it's something we developed internally. We had some help, cool. but we mod- We took a plan that somebody had that was an annual plan, and we broke it into quarters so we could create some movement in it rather than just we just because it wasn't moving well enough. And that one-page business plan and following that process drives us. It's a roadmap, and so you know, it's like anything else. If 
you want to, if you have a company and you don't have a roadmap, you will not grow. You might grow a little bit by accident, but if you have a roadmap and you set goals, then you will grow. Better example. So let's say you have a fourplex and you're happy with that fourplex and you don't pay attention to it. And 10 years later, you still have that fourplex. But if you active are an active investor, you look at that fourplex every year and you'll say, how much has my equity grown? At some point you'll say, oh, it's grown $50,000. I can refinance it and buy another property. And now you've got another property. Yeah. And you keep doing that. And, yeah, they got two fourplexes, right. That is the same process in business. You have to look at yourself and you have to say, okay, what can I do? Do I buy a business? And, and the other thing is being visible. I mean, you guys are visible and some, you know, things have happened to us that we didn't plan. You know, we bought a company three years ago. We had no idea we we're going to buy them. Somebody called up. He says, you know, Cliff, I like you. I had no idea who he was. I like you. I've heard only good things about you. I've read all your articles. I'm trying to sell my business. I said, okay, well, this is about what it's worth. This is how you should sell it. Da, 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 da. So about three months later, he says, do you know anybody that will buy it? And I said, I don't know. Let me look at your numbers. So he looked at it and I said, yeah, we will buy it from you. And, and we did, it was a three-year payout plan and, and it's, it's going to be a good investment. It made money from day one and it was a good decision for him. It was a good decision for us. And, you know, sometimes things happen, but things only happen if you're visible. If you sit behind your desk and you don't tell anybody you're out there, nothing happens. I mean, yeah. a lot of our businesses refer business. I mean, that's the other question we do. I mean, Luke's work is calling people and talking to them and stuff like that. But in the end, a big bunch of our business is business that's referred to us by friends who know that we do a good job and we stay in touch with. Yeah, that's great. So did that help, Chris? Yes, it did. Absolutely. So now that you're an 80-person company, and you've got five divisions. Are there five team leaders for each of the divisions? And then you have a leadership team of six people? Or it's exactly it's exactly how it is. We've had bigger management teams. We have a thing, we have we do bonusing. So the department heads, there's some bonusing involved. And so I've been really careful about making sure that our management team doesn't get so overwhelmingly big that the bonus isn't significant. So we have six people on our management team, all the six members. We get a, There's a bonus that they get. They get bonused on their NOI, their net operating income. So we track monthly what the departmental NOIs are, and then they get bonused on that NOI in a step basis. The more you make, the more you make to a certain level. And then it's not so much that the NOI drives you to make decisions that are good for your clients, but it's enough to motivate you to make certain decisions that you maybe you wouldn't make otherwise. You know, maybe you wouldn't hire that extra person because you want your NOI to look better. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you find a different way or a more efficient way to do it. And so that's a very helpful. And then at the end of the year, they get bonused on how well the company does and they share that the management team shares a bonus. And we shared also a profit sharing with our employees. We don't take them for granted. So our employees are, are all making a couple grand at the end of the year in, in a profit sharing bonus. That's a great way to take care of the employees and like have their interests aligned with what you're looking for. So right. That's but that's not easy to do, by the way. The employee alignment is really difficult to do. I've tried that, to do that for years. And candidly, there's not enough bench depth in the managers to be able to say, well, you will make this much if you do X. It's just very complicated. That has not been as effective. They have their job descriptions. They know what their job is. But those bonuses are just lined up to how well the company is doing rather than how well the department's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's 
pretty difficult to, to line out. And so do you have a CFO and a COO? Yes. I have a chief, I have a chief operating, excuse me, I have an executive vice president who has three, four of the departments reporting to him, and then the controller and the brokerage report to me. I'm running the brokerage right now because I like running the brokerage. And the controller reports to me and we work really close together. And it, basically there's two accounting departments. There's a corporate accounting department and then there's property management accounting. So our controller worked for us as the head of our property management accounting department and then became our operations vice president. Didn't like it, was not his thing. And then went back into the accounting side of the business and then worked his way under a couple controllers, became assistant controller, and then worked up to controller. He's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. And our financial statements are extraordinary. You know, every month we have 150 pages of, of financial statements that we review that basically compare to budget, compare to last year, and compare year to date to actual. So there's a lot of analysis that we do in every department all year long and, and trying to establish, you know, again, did something get posted right? Are we overspending? You know, are we with, and we do some KPIs, key performance indicators as well to see that who's making money, who's not, pie charts, and all the cool little stuff that, you know, sophisticated small companies do when they have that's, time and they have a controller that's going to do it. And it's all checklisted. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That sounds like a very would, developed and mature process. I like it. I would love to, to be a fly on the wall for... I, I can't help myself. I've got to, I got, I got to, I got to dig in here. You said you're, you're heading up the brokerage because you like it. Like, tell me, what do you like about it? Why keep yourself in that position? Well, that's a hard question. First of all, (laughs) first of all, I've helped a lot of clients, you know, be successful. Yeah. And I know that the fastest way for me to help the growth of the company is to help our largest clients broker deals. That being said, there's not enough hours in the day for me anymore to do all that stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm still working six, seven days a week often. So, you know, I still do a lot of driving on the boat and, you know, write the articles, you've seen them and, you know, try to stay on the cutting edge. But it used to be that I was involved in, you know, everything in the state when it came to, you know, rate control and all that stuff. I'm like next generation handle that. I just don't have that bandwidth anymore. (laughs) And I was really, really involved legislatively for almost 20 years. And now I'm just like, Somebody else has got to do this. But you have to know what's going on in order to be relevant for your clients. I mean, that's the other piece of this puzzle. But in Oregon and Washington, the the pro-tenant process has become very powerful. California, too. I mean, it's all over the country. So you just have to pay attention. But at this point, I review the financials, right? Because I have to review the financials. Because if I don't, who's going to do it, right? You know, I'm paying attention to what our clients do. I drive out and inspect properties, I'm helping people buy stuff. I need to know what's happening in the temperature of the marketplace. And so by being involved in the brokerage, I know that right now things are so overvalued. It's just doesn't, you know, it's hard for an investor to make money in Portland, but not in Arizona. You know, there's all sorts of places you can make money. So, and finding opportunity, you just have to work a lot harder. And it's been this way. It's been challenging in our marketplace for 15 years. There's just a lot of money in the marketplace that wants to place. And so understanding that, you know, a lot of, I've got a client, I've got, I don't know, I just helped a client place a couple million dollars. I've got another client who has a million and a half in his pocket, more than one, who have a million and a half in their pocket. And finding something here that actually makes financial sense is, and you can get a loan on, is really difficult. 
and you know not all the numbers as you know i guess you just have to decide if you're willing to take risk or not right and some clients are and some clients are not so but there's a lot of change why do i do what i do is because i i just like the brokerage side of the business i'm a deal junkie and so that's the fun part of the business the management side of the business i you know i'm a detail guy i read every lease i sign off every management agreement you know i'm very actively involved in our business yeah chris and i have always said that we're we we never want to give up the brokerage like we're we always want to be kind of like in the deal a little bit like we we want to put it together but we maybe don't want to do all the dirty work afterwards. <laughs> well, and I will not lie to you that it just takes a lot of time. I can write a purchase sale agreement as fast as anybody else can because yeah. we have it pre-kitted up. But that being said, when you get to five different iterations of the counter offer, ugh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then you get to the inspection and oh my God, what was that? But we've been fortunate. We've been able to sell some great properties to our clients. And as we all know, it's all about location, 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 right? I mean, it's, that is still the golden rule, and that hasn't changed, and it hasn't changed from when I started in real estate, and it's still the golden rule. If you have a good location, a property will do well. That being said, the government is messing with a lot of stuff now, and, <laughs> and, and, they're, and they're making it harder. You know, all the hazardous controls and all the discrimination controls not that i'm against them but i mean it's just a lot of stuff that wasn't imputed into the financial analysis when you bought the property you know so it's just more risk kind of stuff that didn't exist yeah that's that is definitely true well interestingly enough three things that you've previously mentioned aj and i are are doing right now first of all inspections i have three inspections coming up on wednesday thursday and friday for three apartment deals that we're buying from our friend Joe Weston, American Property Management. And AJ and I are syndicating one of the deals. And it's, you know, like, that is such a fun part of the business that, you know, we're, we're talking with investors. And also, like, I can see those relationships forming. If, if those syndications do well and we are able to perform, you know, a couple syndications, a couple, two or three every year. I can see those investors like growing with us. Like we, we buy one apartment complex and then we sell it three to five years later and they're going to reinvest with us. And I, I can just see that money double and then quadruple and then octuple. And, you know, it's like, oh, wow, it's, it's been 20 years. And, you know, that's that's something that we're really really excited about. It's just kind yeah, of yeah. Like syndication learn, business learn. is good business. Make sure you've got errors and missing insurance. And do you have that syndication business as a separate company, or is it part of Uptown Properties? It is a separate company, Uptown Syndication good. LLC. Okay, and, and that, so that should have its own E and O insurance. Okay, is there an experience share behind that? No, there's no experience here behind that, but you know, we exited out of one of our syndications and we got sued by somebody that didn't feel that they didn't feel like they were being treated right. Totally treated right. Went above and beyond, but they were just in another planet and cost us some money. And so thank God it was a small amount of money. It was under ten thousand dollars. But it's real money. Created a lot of stress and it could have been a lot more, it could have been a lot worse. And so you definitely need to protect your downside from because just because they like you today doesn't mean they're gonna like you tomorrow. That's really yeah, good that's, advice. That's great advice. We will 
reach out to our and exiting broker. and exiting is really difficult. I mean, everybody, you know, we did a bunch of LLC stuff. We got people in, but getting people out, you have to form a TIC. That means you have to do a drop and swap, and then the drop and swap has to, is supposed to be done two years before you exit. And you do the drop and swap, you lose control of the LLC that you've built. A lot to be learned. <laughs> we had that talk with David Moore. I think I was in Mexico at that point, and he was explaining the drop and swap to us. And it's something that we hope to be able to do, but like losing control of the asset or having it require, you know, 100% like consensus is, is a difficult thing. And it's a whole totally difficult thing. There's got to be a better way to do it. I can tell you that. There's got to be a better way because it really got ugly. I'll tell you a, di a different story, there, but there's a story. Let's hear it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Different day, different story. Okay, okay, okay. okay. We can always uh, come back. I can always come back. So, I mean, Cliff, you started in 1983. I'll say it again. The real estate market and the technology that has like been invented and developed is pretty pretty substantial mm -hmm. i mean you want to give us your your quick take on that and then we'll move on to our four questions sure so when i joined the business we had an accounting machine that was as big as my desk and you had a card and you'd put the card in and it would post the journal and you'd pull the card out the tenant ledger and you'd do it and then you post the next rent you put the next card in because the law required of course that you had to track all the postings right it's a big freaking machine so the first thing we did is we bought well, that i when i got involved in the businesses i encouraged us to go towards computers took a couple years and then we we would switch over to computers you know you know like franklin's and apples and stuff like that and then we switched <laughs> over to uh, five by seven floppies yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That's yeah. right. And then we, you know, networked together and my wife, Julie, was our IT manager and she was extraordinarily good. She could talk to a computer and it would behave. And, you know, and so that, and then let's talk about the pandemic, you know, we're now into touchless showings, you know, we never would have done that. Actually, we were doing it before the pandemic and it just expanded. And so, I mean, we have a drone, don't use it very much, not very practical. We have, oh, we have a GPS on every one of our maintenance men's trucks because some of our maintenance men were doing stuff on their own account, right? So we're able to ma manage our maintenance people better. We have, you know, we just switched over to, from having our own, we used to have for years, I insisted on it, we had our own server. Now everything is hosted by Microsoft in the, in the cloud. And that's been a, like a five-year progression into the cloud. So, you know, we just keep doing all these little baby steps to try to be as efficient as possible. And it's a good thing. We have Ring Central, like you do, but we had Ring Central before it became popular because we wanted to I allow wish we people invested. Uh, invest in the stuff you use. There you go. <laughs> so anyway, so you know, that that in itself has been super helpful and you know our transition from office to working at home was not difficult at all as a result so those are the kinds of things but also the simple stuff everybody has a list of things they need to do and it's saved in the software we have we have okay software i wouldn't say we have the best software but we have fairly strong software you know we take pictures before and after of service work we do so if anybody has a question we can say well we did it here's the picture 
You know, the faucet didn't work. Now here's the faucet fixed. What do you mean we didn't do it? Well, we did. You didn't think we cleaned the roof? Here's a picture of the roof. We cleaned the roof. So, you know, all these little baby innovations, each one of them is a little baby step, are massive when you take them as a big package and offering service to your clients. Yeah, so, we're, some we're inventors. We invent things every day. Every day, yep. <laughs> all right, so awesome. four questions, huh? Yeah, let's, let's get yeah. to our last four questions. So started off, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Oh, my God. You know, I actually have five answers to that. I pre-planned for this. And, <laughs> and I would say the most important one that as a 25-year-old I wouldn't have listened to was start buying real estate at 25. Just start buying yeah. real estate at 25. Don't wait till you're 30. Don't wait till you're 35. Don't wait till you're 40. Start buying real estate. It doesn't make a difference. House, duplex, whatever it is, small commercial building, start at 25. And by the time you're 60, you'll have a significant nest egg and you'll be able to support your retirement. Diversify would be the other thing is don't just do one product, you know, do apartments and you know, whatever else. So that's, that would be the, the most important, important thing and work with people you like and trust. You know, I think that's really important. Work with people you like and trust. Mm-hmm. The Thanks. millionaire real estate investor answer. I like it. Have yeah. you read Gary Keller's millionaire real estate investor? Probably, but I've read so many books that I've right. You know. <laughs> Tough to keep track. All right. Well, here's Next question. here's a good question. I'm excited for this one. What was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Well, first of all, as I told you, I went to undergraduate school and the graduate school, and every summer I did an internship and I worked my way through college and I worked my way through graduate school. So I'm in graduate school, and a friend of mine got an opportunity to do some consulting for a helicopter company that had trouble running their company. And so, you know, we're just budding MBAs, right? We know everything. We're the next McKinsey guys, right? <laughs> so we did. We put together an analysis on what they could do to help them run their company better and make more money. And they paid us, I don't know, a couple thousand bucks. And that was my first entrepreneurial venture. And, you know, I ended up working for Cornell Pump Company. And, and I really wanted to get out of there and run my own company. Once you're in graduate school, you go, I want to run my own company. Just let me run my own company. But, you know, working... At S. Bluestone, I've learned a lot. I've made my fair share of mistakes. And so I've done some consulting. I've done some projects. But the first one was consulting on a helicopter project. That's pretty cool. Did you, did you get to fly the helicopters? No, but my job in graduate school, I worked for a company called Studco, which made metal studs, metal extruded metal studs. And that owner had a helicopter right at the shop. And uh-huh. so we would go up and down Eugene, up and down Portland in the helicopter. I had a blast. I love helicopter flying. That being said, I hate Piper Cubs. Those things hit every bump in the sky. I would get green because there wasn't always enough room (laughs) in the helicopter. So one brother had a plane and the other one had a helicopter. So I always made sure I ran for the helicopter. I'm sitting there. I like that much better. I can handle those bumps. Damn little Piper Cubs. (laughs) Can't see them coming. That's fun. All right. Our next one is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, I have a master's degree. I have an undergraduate degree. I went to schools that were tough. I know how to read and write. I mean, silly as it may sound, you know, why did I write a book? Because I know how to read and write. And I like doing that. But I also have a CPM. I, went, I mean, I felt it was important to get an AMO, have a SB in a credit management company. 
you know, in the country, there's only 560 accredited management companies and we're one of them. And so that means our procedures are better than other companies' procedures. We know what the state of the art is. And we definitely understand, have learned a lot in that process of improving, because I'm very focused on constant improvements, process improvements. So in informal training, though, you know, every bump in the road is informal training. Every time, you know, don't think we haven't had, I haven't had some litigation with some clients, because I have. And those have been formative moments and difficult ones. And so a lot of our conservatism comes from, let's make sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed so I don't have to fight. Yeah. That's the answer to that question. That inspires us. I mean, we've been eyeing the CRMC, NARPM, and, you know, we just haven't done it yet. You know, like it's... Do it. Do it just because of the networking. Do it just because of the networking. The networking itself gives you a group of friends that are on the same trip you're on and will help you get there. Definitely worth every minute. Okay. Well, we're going to do it. And our final question... I like to broaden out this question. It's normally just of real estate or real estate investments, but I like to broaden it out. So what was your Moby Dick of, of business or opportunities or real estate? You know, the, the one, you know, that got away, like looking back, you're like, oh my gosh, if we just would have done that. Well, that syndications business is a big business, you know, and we did a couple of syndications And things that you guys are really good at and I'm not good at is I'm really good at underwriting, but I'm not good at asking people for money. And I'm horrible asking people for money. I just can't do it. And so I literally, after I did my second syndication, I had a nervous breakdown and because I just couldn't do it. And I, I basically stopped working for two years. But if we had been able to ramp up the syndication business and done 10, 15, 20 of them, AJ, I'd be permanently in Mexico. (laughs) You know, I mean, if we had done that, but it's also, it's about trust and, you know, the, all of our clients trust us. They're all friends. You know, I had a, you know, and they invested early and I made them a lot of money. I made people a lot of money and I'm okay with that. I'm totally okay with that. That's what our job is. Our job is to help people be successful in real estate. So the one that got away is really the syndication and not starting it earlier, but you know, but maybe I wasn't mature enough earlier. You know what I mean? Didn't know enough about the business, didn't know about the underwriting and resources and so on. The one thing I forgot to mention is that I'm also a CCIM, and which is a very high level broker. And that was worth every second. I mean, that really, that learning the underwriting through CCIM was worth every penny of it. And if you guys want to do the syndication stuff, I would get my CCIM, candidly. That is hard to do, but worth every second of the effort cool so cliff you say that you have made your clients a lot of money and i completely agree with that but i I think that you're kind of undervaluing you know just the service that you have provided to the real estate community in general you know i know that like when i joined iram like i learned a massive amount from you just from reading your articles listening to you talk and you know i know that there are countless other real estate professionals in the portland area who you know will say the exact same thing so i just want to say thank you and you know i'm like i, I just really appreciate it so thank you well, so thank you. much 
That's yeah. that's very sweet. That's very very nice. That's very very nice. It's a labor of love. <laughs> <laughs> well, we very much appreciate you coming on the podcast and answering all our questions and all that. If our listeners wanna wanna get a hold of you or your company, do you want to give out some information on how to how to contact sure. you? Sure, I can be reached at my cell number now, right? Because who's working at the office, right? 503-267-1909. And email is chockley, C-H-O-C-K-L-E-Y, at bluestonehockley.com. And I'm teaching a class at PSU starting in about a week on commercial property management. So if anybody wants to be a late signer-upper, we have 25 students signed up, about half graduate and half undergraduate. And, you know, just same. I've done teaching at PSU before. I like teaching. It's going to be a lot of fun. Things have really changed. You know, they have this book that we're using called Managing and Leasing Commercial Properties. And it's out of date. <laughs> and it's going to be, it's going to be, well, no, so much has changed. I mean, how do you just tell somebody to manage around homeless, the homeless problem, right? I mean, how do you oh, do that? I mean, how do you do that, right? And how do you tell somebody you really need security at most properties anymore in certain areas because, you know, the needles, the hit and runs, you know, that when I'm talking about smash and grabs is what I really wanted to say, not the hit and runs, the smash and grabs, the, you know, if you have a medical office building, you have to have security because people are going to try to break in and steal the drugs. I mean, things that, you know, when I started in the business, never would have happened, or at least we think so. You know, things have really, really changed. You know, the basics, the leasing is the same, the collecting money is the same. But I mean, who would have thought, I mean, I'm trying to get implemented right now, that you would have had to change. I don't know if you know if you do this, you know, we change filters four times a year on our office and warehouse and retail buildings where they have air conditioning. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that you would step that up to six times a year because of COVID, right? I mean, who would have thought that you would have put in bigger filters? There are so many changes happening. Who would have thought that maybe you ought to be putting in different kinds of systems to kill bacteria in order to yeah. protect your tenants? I mean, my Lord, nobody would have thought about that. Elevators, no touch elevators, really. On command return elevators, you know, interesting stuff. It's an yeah. interesting time. It's a very, very interesting time. But what hasn't changed, though, is the blocking and the tackling. Elevators still need to run. Yep, and rent's still, still being collected. Rent's still being collected, and the other thing is having insurance. Yeah. I mean, I was gonna, I didn't, I didn't say that early enough, but insurance. You know, we've had our fair share of people trip and fall at properties we manage, and it's absolutely critical that your clients have insurance and that you have insurance to be successful, because otherwise it'll break you. So we've been involved more than once in trip and falls over the wow. term of of managing properties. So that I think is the most important thing that people should do is make sure they have enough insurance. There's never enough, but they should make sure they have enough insurance. Awesome. Gentlemen, what Jeff, a pleasure. Been, it was so much great. fun. Thank you so thank much. You. Fun. Yeah. We really thank you. It. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to come back. So let me know if you want me to come back. We can do phase Absolutely. two, come up with new questions. All yeah. right. Stay well. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.